and yes, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was the. It, and, uh, this has happened several times in history where a town got completely off the beam, or a country got off the beam, and began to believe that God was a butterfly, or uh, you know, some nutty thing. Who knows, you know? But but got got off like Germany got off the beam about you know hundred years ago or twenty years ago or something. Uh, well, apocrypha began to believe, began to completely believe that the Earth was triangular shaped. They did. They believed that the Earth was triangular shaped, and the center of the Earth was next to the main soda fountain in Apocrypha. And that was the apex of the triangle. Well, they began to send out missionaries all around Greece, the ancient Greece of the time, and even some of them got over to Rome, some got to Tyrus, uh, some got all the way on up to Babylon. And, of course, there was a lot of trouble, because every one of these towns had another religion. Each one of them, each religion centered around the fact that the center of the universe was right next to to the stable down there at the end, past, just past the gas station, just beyond the firehouse. Well, of course, it was trouble. So when the guys from Apocrypha arrived and said, we have the new religion, the new religion states thus and so. It was stated one time in the clouds and the great moonbeams and the swirling smoke that came down out of the mountain head of Zeus, that Apocrypha was the... Well, of course, in the end, there were a lot of guys with heads cut off. Well, no, this became to be known then as apocryphal knowledge, literally, which there's another word for it. We have several words for it here in America now, uh, terrible words. I, I, it's, a, it's a, well, it's awful words. It's, just, it's funny how many of those words have to do with stables. But the, the apocryphal, well, nevertheless, that's a friendly word. I have, a, I have an idea that most of our knowledge is apocryphal, but... Uh, Nonetheless, my old man, every time, you'll see, we're sitting there, we're eating. We're shoveling in the uh, the hamburger and the red cabbage. See, we're sitting there knocking it down, and the pickles are gone. And up on top of the refrigerator is the radio. It's playing all kinds of junk. Nobody's paying any attention. And suddenly, very quietly, we hear the strains of, very quietly... And the ketchup is going back and forth, and the mashed potatoes are making the rounds. And all of a sudden, my old man says, shh, shh, listen to what they're playing. What's the name of that tune? And my mother would know what's coming. She would say, uh, Nola. He'd say, Nola. Shh, shh, God, it is Nola. That's a great tune. Shut up, will you, Randy? You can wait for your mashed potatoes after the tune. Now shut up. It's a very good tune. Very good. Very good. Do you know that I knew the man who wrote Nola? He would throw that out on the table as if he had never said it before. Well, I would sit there with a red cabbage. My kid brother has now got a hold of the mashed potatoes. And my mother would say, this is her cue. She would say, no, really? He would say, yes. There was a pool room on the south side when I was a kid. And this guy used to come in every day. Do you know that he never made, and he would say it as if he is unfolding great information, he never made a red dime on it. And my mother would say, no, why? What happened? He'd say, well, you know how those big guys are in the music business. 
My mother would say, how are they? They'll steal you blind. Why, you don't think for one minute that Irving Berlin wrote all that? Oh, boy, they'll steal you. Richard Rogers, let me tell you, this guy used to come in every Monday. Now, he was just like anybody else, came in, play a couple of sticks of snooker, played a pretty good game of rotation, and we're playing one day, and they are playing on the phonograph in the back by the boss's desk. They are playing a tune. And suddenly he puts his cue down. I hear the tune. It's Nola. I said to him, what's the matter? He said, I don't want to talk about it. My old man then goes on to say, but I asked him what it was. He said, I wrote that tune, and I didn't get a dime for it. Well, that was the great apocryphal story about Nola in our house. <laughs> Whether my old man ever knew him or not. Speaking of apocryphal, this is WOR AM and FM New York. I hate to interrupt your sound reverie. Yes, spring has come. This morning, a nameless hill is shrouded in mist. <laughs> oh, it goes right down there to your pancreas. This is Japanese haiku, the lovely 17-syllable, three-line ancient verse form that gives true expression to the human soul, searches and probes for beauty, it must contain a reference to nature, a reference to life, and a reference to the time of the year. And if you think that you can write haiku, and everyone can write a three-line verse, for crying out loud, nothing to it, uh, send your haiku entry to Japan Airlines Haiku Contest, WOR New York 18. Must be in by June 15th. Speaking of the time of the year, ah, oh, my soul is crushed, the bird has flown, the chick is gone, I sit desolate. But uh, whether or not my old man ever knew the guy who wrote Nola is up to up for grabs. Uh, no one ever pushed him to the you know you just don't push a guy to the to the to the radiator you know don't push him all the way to the wall or the refrigerator say now come on now uh, what was his name I'm going to go down and buy a record of Nola <laughs> you know so you just accept that and you nod well there were about ten other stories I would say roughly that were apocryphal. Uh, that, that were that kind of story. My mother used. My mother had a great one too. She used to say to me, every, "This, believe me, this this happens. This happened as recent as a year ago when I see her. We're sitting there, we're gonna eat. See, all right, we're sitting around a table. We're gonna eat now. That you got the stage is all set. Now the stage is set for the family myth and drama about to be replayed. It is breakfast, so we are sitting at breakfast table. And my mother says." Uh, you want your boiled eggs three minutes or five minutes? And I say, give me my boiled eggs four and a half minutes, Ma. She says, okay. There's a brief pause of four and a half minutes. And now at the table, she comes with the boiled egg. She puts it down and she says, did I ever tell you what you did once when you were a little kid, when you were a baby, what you said about the boiled eggs, eh? I look up at her, grabbing for the toast. And I say, no, Ma, what did I say about the boiled eggs when I was a little kid? She said, well, here's what you said. I was about to peel the boiled egg, and you looked up at me and said, Ma, will you take the bricks off of the eggs? And I said, what? See, my, uh, she wants me to explain, so I always say, what did I mean by that? She says, well, you always called the shells the bricks on the eggs. Isn't that funny? I said, my God, I never heard that, Ma. That's very funny. 
Now, would you please pass the butter? See, the point is, you know, it's very difficult to say, Ma, will you cut it out? That rotten story about the bricks and the eggs. I don't want to hear it no more. You made it up. It's rotten. Terrible. Now give me the toast. Oh, boy. <laughs> you don't want to hear any more apocryphal stories, do you like that? <laughs> you do? Well, all right, I'll tell you what. There was always the funny thing that Uncle Charles said at the picnic in the forest preserves. Now, that, that one went like this. Here's exactly how this would go. My mother would come back from the living room where she has talked on the phone to Aunt Clara. And she has says, We are going over to Uncle Charles and Aunt Clara's house for dinner on Sunday. Uh, now, now, I want you kids to be quiet and go and enjoy yourself this time. And, and Jean, don't hit Buddy. And I would say, okay. And then she would go and dust the fern. There would be a brief pause. And she says, you know, I can never get over the funny thing that Uncle Charles said one time when we were at the picnic at the forest preserve. Did I ever tell you what Uncle Charles said? It was before you were born. And then I would say, no, Ma, what did Uncle Charles say at the forest preserves the time you were on the picnic? She says, well, we sat down and we spread out all our stuff. Aunt Min, you know, is very, very proud of her potato salad. Well, Uncle Charles took one bite of the potato salad, looked up and said, Are there any ants around here? Aunt Min said, What do you mean? He said, Well, if there are, after they taste this potato salad, there won't be. Well, Aunt Min hit him on top of the head with a roll. And I'll tell you, Aunt Clara hit him and says, Don't talk like that, Charles. Well, I split. I actually split. I have never forgotten. Didn't I ever tell you about what Uncle Charles said? Well, there there was another. You want to hear more? <laughs> They're terrible. I mean, every one of them is totally pointless and is a completely family apocryphal story. You don't want to hear about the time Uncle Fred went to Sears Roebuck, do you, to buy a set of tires for his Essex. You don't want to hear that one, do you? That went through my... It's still being told. As a matter of fact, I understand that one has been crocheted into a quilt. Uh, I understand it's, it's a, a symbolic quilt. You know, Uncle Fred going into Sears Roebuck. It's got four ties, Essex, the whole business once more. <laughs> you don't want to hear that one, do you? No, I don't think so. So uh, these these are American apocryphal stories. Now, that... that uh, I wonder whether that's life or not, you know. I wonder whether that is, is the... You, you sit in the bus, you know, Ed, and you, you walk around the streets and you go into grocery stores and you see all these people. And around every one of these people is a little cloud of life. You know, all the things. They've, they've all got Uncle Charles's. You know, there's, everybody's got, has got a cousin Merle. Uh, everyone's got a, uh, an outrigger cousin named Arlene. The one that spent all of her time in the John making up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, oh, didn't I ever tell you what they used to always say about Arlene? That was a funny one. Arlene was probably nine or ten. I don't know what she was, maybe t 11 or something. I was about the same age, see? And that used to be the funny story. My mother used to say, when we are going over to Aunt Kate's house, this was another apocryphal story. We're going over to Aunt Kate's house. She would say, uh, we are going to Aunt Kate's, and I want both of you to go to the bathroom. And then my cue was, why now? She would say, well, when we get to Aunt Kate's house, you won't be able to go. 
And I said, why? She says, because Arlene will be in the bathroom making up. She will be in the bathroom making up. <laughs> now, you go ahead and go now. I said, oh, for crying out loud, that's right, Mom. <laughs> and, and, and forever and ever and ever and ever, Arlene is the one who's in the bathroom making up. <laughs> you don't want to hear any more of these, do you? All right, I'll tell you one great apocryphal story. Okay, one more great apocryphal story. Give me some apocryphal story music, please. Apocrypha was a small town in Greece. This town was only 74 leagues from Athens, which at the time was the leading center of civilization. Three dissident Dionysian cultists gathered one afternoon at the Forum and began to propound the cult of Apocrypha. Later, it became known as Apocrypha. All right, so I, I, here, here's another great Another great story. If you <laughs> you don't want to hear these things, really. All right, I'll tell you the great story about Sophie Tucker's dress. Do you want to hear the great story about Sophie Tucker's dress? All right, this is a true apocryphal story. Uncle, this involved Uncle Charles. This was the way it would go. My father would come home from work. This would happen roughly every four months. My father would come home from work, come in through the kitchen. My mother would be sulking. She would stand by the sink. The old man would say, what's biting you? And she'd say, nothing. The old man would go into the bedroom, throw his coat down, pick up the paper, rattle it, come back out, walk around, and say, all right, what's up? What's biting you? Nothing. He would sit down at the kitchen table, pick up his paper, and start reading. And finally she would say this. This is the beginning of the story of Sophie Tucker's dress. She said, I need a new dress. And the old man says, well, buy one. She says, well, what kind of a dress can we afford? Buy one. We bolts. Three ninety-five. Cheesecloth. The old man says, well, what do you expect? She'd say, what about Charles? He'd say, oh, what about Charles? She said, all right, I'll tell you about Charles. Do you know that Charles gave Clara one of Sophie Tucker's dresses? The old man would say, what do you mean? And she says, well, you know that Charles has a cleaning route. He works for the August Schwartz Cleaners. And they do all the big nightclubs. And they have all the famous theatrical people. Well, the other day, Sophie Tucker gave him three dresses to give to Clara. The old man then says, but Sophie Tucker is a big fat cow. Aunt Clara weighs 83 pounds. My mother says, it doesn't make any difference. It's very good material. And it's Sophie Tucker's dress. to hear any more of these pointless family stories. This went through our family for over a hundred years. In fact, the only time, whenever I want to really get my mother purple with rage, call her up and say, hey, Ma, Ma, I, I, I saw Sophie Tucker on television. She says, do you know that Aunt Clara once had three dresses that Uncle... <laughs> you don't want to hear any more of this, do you really? <laughs> these are apocryphal stories terrible uh, so this is uh, these are the great unrecorded stories though. none of this stuff is ever written into angry novels by Salinger or angry novels by Shepard or anybody that's just the stuff of life you know 
Oh, we had several stories. We had, uh, I, I, I might as well tell you the story of the Hupmobile with a rubber frame. <laughs> oh, boy. That's the story that hung like the sword of vengeance over my father's head for as long as I can remember. It just hung over him. You know, there, there, there are usually three or four things in our lives, as you know, Ed, that are held against us for all of our lives by everybody within earshot. Uh, well, yes, it's never said. It just hangs over there. Well, my old man and the, and the Hupmobile with the rubber frame was another... I don't know whether it was apocryphal or not, but this is the way it went. My old man one time said to my mother, and by the way, my mother would always do this. this is, here's the way it would go. Springtime would come. My father, like, like the salmon in spring, would begin to get very, very terrible urges to swim upstream or to do something, you know. And, and in the springtime, his urge was to swim to Stony Island and to buy a new car. Well, a new used car. That's what he, he always thought in terms of a, of a used car, never ever a new car. So it would, the first vague budding of spring, and the old man would come home flushed. You could see he's had a, you know, one, he very rarely drank, had one or two drinks, come home flushed. And, and, and he comes into the house, and the, his first expression would be that damn Graham Page. Oh, that damn Graham Page. Long pregnant pause. Mother over near sink. Sink is gurgling. She has Brillo pad going. She knows what is about to happen. She says, what is it doing now? He says, what difference does it make? What is it doing now? What difference does it make all winter? Nothing but dough down the rat hole. The rat hole, by the way, he had bought the previous spring. And uh, five minutes after he bought the rat hole, he started to shovel cash into it. Well... <laughs> so there's a long pause after that blast about the rat hole. And my mother says, but you said it was a very good car last spring. Another long pregnant pause. Old man now says, look, don't you try to tell me about cars. Well, now that was a non sequitur if I ever heard one. There would be a brief skirmish against the boards. And then my mother retorts with, what about the Hupmobile? That was the shot right between the eyes with the elephant gun. He would say, why do you always bring up that Hupmobile? She'd say, well, let me tell you about that Hupmobile. You pestered me for a month to go down and look at that clunker. We went down and looked at that clunker. And five minutes after we drove out of the lot with that clunker, it was going two ways at once. It was so out of line that the kids were riding ahead of us and they were in the back seat. That Hupmobile. And if it wasn't for me going back and raising cane with that guy at Friendly Fred's used car shop, we'd have still been driving that car with a rubber frame. And they took... You know, we went, I remember you went under and you looked at it with the light. What did you see? That has nothing to do with the Essex. What do you mean it has nothing to do with the Essex? You got under there and you looked, and the frame had been busted in half, and they had put plastic wood in there and painted it black. It had a rubber frame. You know about cars. Now we're going to go down. What are we going to look at this time? Long pregnant pause, he says. An Oldsmobile. Eight. Oldsmobile! After what happened to Uncle Charles and that Oldsmobile? <laughs> 
that's the standard family story there. You see, I never quite understood whether the whether the story of the Huffmobile was true or not, but it must have been a great moment. <laughs> these are the these are the tapestry of which lives are woven, and these things I'm telling you, of course, are, are absolutely, positively, ab all the way true. You want to hear another great apocryphal story? I don't know why I'm telling you these. These are very dull stories. You want to hear some more of these? All right, another dull story. Do you want to hear what Randy said the time I went with Randy to the store to buy the bread? See, that's in capital letters. Of what happened the time I went with Randy down to the store to buy the bread? All right, one, two, three. That is a story that has been told to me at least 150 times ever since I was perhaps 15 and older. It goes like this. I am about to go to the store. If I'm 49, 109, 20, oh, I could be any age, it'll happen. See, I say to my mom, uh, I'm going to the store. Is there anything you want? She says, uh, no, I can't think of anything now. Say, uh, <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Did I ever tell you of what Randy said the time you and Randy went to the store to get a loaf of bread when you were kids? No, Ma, what did Randy say the time I went to the store with Randy and we went down to the store to get a loaf of bread together when we were kids? Well, I'll tell you what. I told both of you to go down to the store to buy a loaf of fresh bread. A loaf of fresh bread. Because that guy down at the store, Wisniewski, was always sending stale bread unless I went down and got it myself. So I said, get a loaf of fresh bread. Now, do you remember a loaf of fresh bread? So, both of you went to the store. You must have been five. He was about three. So both of you get down to the store, and you are standing in the store looking at the candy. When Mr. Wasnufsky comes over and looks down at Randy and says, What do you want? Whereupon Randy said, A loaf of fleshter bled. He says, What? Fleshter bled. With that? Three ladies in the store laughed very hard. Mr. Wisniewski called me up and said, What does this kid want? I said he wants a loaf of fresh bread. Whereupon Mr. Wisniewski says to Randy, What is that you want? A loaf of fleshter bled. And with that, Mr. Wisniewski laughs. All the ladies in the store laughed, and Randy started to cry. Then, what do you think you said? I said, No, Ma, what did I say? Well, you went up to Mr. Wisniewski and said, If you don't stop making fun of Randy, I'm going to hit you. Isn't that great? No, I can't think of anything that I need from the store. I don't think I ever told you that story. You know, that was... <laughs> Terrible rotten stories. <laughs> These are the pointless anecdotes of which lives are woven. <laughs> the great moments... In life, you don't want to. No, I, I can't tell you any more of these. No, 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 no more of these. No. <coughs> oh boy. <coughs> hey, any of you got any ideas what to do for a cold out there? Huh? Sure would like to know. I, I'm just at a loss of what to do for a cold. By George. Any of you got any ideas? Huh? Any of you? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, uh, the, these things also part of the apocryphal folk wisdom has to do with say such oh stuff like. I wonder if anybody's ever written up a uh, a volume of junk like this, a volume of junk that people all believe, like what to do if you've had too much to drink the night before. Okay, you got to Ed. What is? It? Come on, tell me what you do. <laughs> there it is. He's got it right there. Everybody knows. Uh, oh, yeah, the millions of things. Uh, where is it that you feel it when a storm is going to come when you have had arthritis? You feel it in your what? That's right. Everyone, uh, that's that's a folk wisdom. <laughs> you feel it in your bones. Well, now, can you imagine a doctor, two guys in, the, in a laboratory, one guy says, <laughs> I feel it in my bones. And there's a big skeleton hanging about there's two anatomists. And <laughs> it's terrible, I'm sorry. Awful cartoon. But this is the kind of junk. Uh, speaking of apocryphal ideas, uh, one, of, one of the most important, of course, is, is the idea. My father used to solemnly intone this. He would intone it like he was intoning scriptures. This was another one. We would be sitting at the kitchen table. We're eating, see. And they're talking about, you know, just ordinary subjects, which always, by the way, involve the same conversation over and over and over again about uh, Clarence down at the office. Some night I'm going to start doing a whole series of, of, of stories my father told about the office. Totally apocryphal. Clarence at the office. Gus in the office. Uh, Heine Mock in the office. Well, he's sitting there telling these stories, and he's going on. And, you know, they talk about prices and one thing. You know, the jazz world, the, the home conversation, the, the, the stuff that lives are spent doing, you know, talking about dish rags, Yamilton's department store, blah, 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 Clara called, blah, 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 goes on and on and on. And finally, the old man comes up with this one. This one is, is he says, I paid the gill, I paid the bill down at Stokowski's. And she says, how much was it? And he says, $18. $18. He says, yep. The, by the way, Stokowski's was a big gas station where the old man spent all of his money. And he'd say, you know, he says, boy, I'll tell you, these gasoline guys are ringing. Let me tell you, they're really ringing you dry. Did I ever tell you about the guy I met who knew a guy who invented a carburetor that would run on water? Really run on water. That was the cue for my mother to say, no, really? Yeah? Really? Yeah. He says, one night I'm at the bowling alley, and I met this guy who was bowling for the tin mill. And we're sitting there, and he says, you know, and we were talking about gas. We are talking about the gas station and the prices. And he says, do you know that I know a guy who made a carburetor that ran on water, but they wouldn't let him get it out. They would never stand for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that story has been told by every male, Ed, I'd say roughly since 1905, uh, since the maybe about the third automobile was pushed off the assembly line, that they won't let that carburetor out that gets 117 miles to the gallon. They will not do it. <laughs> You know how they are and how much money they make. And you realize what it would do to them? Oh, boy. Oh, crying out loud. Four gallons of gas a year you'd need. Four gallons. Four gallons. A thousand miles to the gallon. You think they want that out? How about the tires? They got a tire? 
You know that they got it. They buy up the patents, you know. Oh, yeah, they buy them up right away, 100000 Buy them up any price. Sometimes they even kill the guy that invented it. I know about it. Yeah, there's a guy in Cleveland invented a tire. Guy, I know for a fact, a fact, a guy invented a tire that lasts 150,000 miles. You think? What do you think happened to him? Never heard of him again. Never seen him again. I know for a fact. And let me tell you, you know there's a guy invented a match what never wears out, it strikes eternally all the time. The same match. What do you think they did to that guy? Oh, oh boy. Oh, what do you think they did to him? Oh. Well, my father had at least 15 different things that he knew that they had invented that lasted forever. Like there was a spark plug that was guaranteed for the life of the car head. Absolutely. What do you think they did with that guy? Oh. That's a deep river out there, that East River. Let me tell you. Yeah, and there was another one, too, that he swore on, on, on a stack of Bibles, of a million high. Oh, fantastic. He says, do you know, do you know that a guy invented a car? The car does not use a battery. Not only that, it does not use conventional fuel like we know. Has no fuel such as we know. And has only two moving parts. Both of them are the wheels. This car lasts a lifetime, and it sells for $75. What do you think they did to him? Huh, they bought that guy up. He sold out. There was also a radio tube guaranteed to last for life, which they bought up. Boy, RCA bought that one up right away. That guy was sent down to shoot. He's working in a, in a tin mine out in Paraguay now. That guy, boy. <laughs> this is one of the great American folk myths, and I hope somebody records that. How many of you guys out there know about that carburetor, fellas? Huh? How many of you guys know about that pill that you put into the gas, and it gives you over 150 miles to the gallon, only they won't let it out? Boy, that's a crummy bunch. I'll tell you. What about that razor blade that they invented that is good for one year? Shaving every day, perfect shaves. Won't let that one out. Oh, not in a pig's ear, man. I'll tell you, let that one out. Oh, oh boy. Oh, they're not going to let that. Let me tell you. I'll tell you this. Uh, I could tell you stories you wouldn't believe. Do you know that the, that a guy invented a kind of leather, uh, a kind of synthetic leather that does not wear discernibly over a 20-year period? Does not wear discernibly. You could get a pair of shoes, and you could wear them shoes for 15 years. Who do you think bought that one up? Do you think they let that guy out? Oh, boy. I'll tell you, I know for a fact because I met a guy who had a pair of them shoes. Because he knew the guy that invented it. And it was an experimental model. A guy had been wearing them since 1922. And this guy was walking around. And you know that they were following him with detectives? <laughs> well, that's the kind of jazz. This is the apocryphal folk humor. And... Uh, uh, I, I can think of several others. Uh, one of my great uh, bits of folk humor, of course, not, it's not folk humor, it's, it's folk, it's, it's really very closely parallel to the kind of stuff that natives in many islands believe in magic. It's, it's a belief in magic is what it really is. Uh, it is a belief in, in, a, uh, in a great supernatural force. Uh, this could even be translated into, uh, into the belief in the devil, the devil versus... Uh, God, oh boy, we can really get philosophical about it, but it, it runs through. And you know, I'll tell you, I'll guarantee you this. Right now, as I'm telling this, there are nine guys out there somewhere listening to the show are getting teed off 
yelling at their wife and saying, I am a nut, and as a matter of fact, I know for a fact that there was a guy in Trenton who had a carburetor. As a matter of fact, I met the son of a gun. What is this nut? Why did they let this guy on the radio? <laughs> and, and yeah, sure. And uh, it goes on and on and on and on and on. There's, there's never any stop to it, actually. It, uh, it, uh, it's, it's like the great sea monster myths that go on. Uh, the people will swear they saw that thing in Loch Ness. They, they will go on forever. It's, it's also akin to the flying saucer myths. Uh, because when, when you have a technical civilization... The myths that involve a technical civilization, which, by the way, is defeating us individually and probably collectively, too, the myths will center around the outcroppings of the great enemy itself. We always achieve, we always ascribe supernatural powers to the enemy. Uh, I can remember during World War II when I was in the Army, uh, the, the idea when you're sitting in basic training the, and, and watching the movies, the Germans were absolutely super soldiers. You remember that, Ed? It, just, it would be like fighting some fantastic king called, forget it, you're never going to beat him. Uh, the idea of fighting a Japanese soldier was like fighting a completely uh, supernatural being. they just uh, incredible kind of fight, just incredible. And, and they, on the other hand, by the way, had myths about us. I was surprised to learn that I was considered a savage, barbaric Superman about the country. Oh, yeah, the Germans said terrible things about it. They were scared. Boy, they were really scared of the Americans. That's the truth. And uh, so, so you always do. Now, the enemy is technical. The enemy is technical in our world today. And so it is only natural that very early after the enemy appears, we begin to give them supernatural powers. Uh, supernatural powers. And, of course, the enemy, too, in, in a civilization, is always the people who seem to be in control of the great big uh, power. In short, the they. The they are keeping the perfect car away from us. Uh, the they are keeping the uh, gasoline that will run forever. The they are keeping away the tires and the razor blades and all the things that would make our life Go forever perfect, all the way on, never trouble, never, all the way to the final grave. The, the AMA now, they're keeping this away from us. They, oh, 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 immediately I can hear the screams out, but they are, they are, they are, oh, wow. Uh, it's always somebody who's keeping paradise away from us. And as long as we can find somebody to yell at, we feel then the paradise is still attainable. If you can find out the rotten son of a gun that's keeping it away. And so uh, my old man always thought it was General Motors. They were doing it to him. That's why his Essex kept dropping transmissions out in the driveway. You know, they, they did it to him again. And, and he always he always said, now that was an earlier civilization. Now today, of course, it's all kinds of things. It's the communists. They're keeping me from getting my knee right. Uh, or it's uh, the AMA. They're keeping me. I'm going to die. Oh, they're doing it. Oh, wow. Uh, there's that one. Then there's... Thank you, Gene Shepard. This is WOR Radio. You are...